we're in a series uh, right now leading up to Easter. It's simply about unexpected moments that surround the resurrection. And today we're going to talk about some random, compelling moments. Random, a haphazard course without definite aim, direction, rule, or method. Sometimes a random moment changes everything. I read about a couple of those this week. One guy wrote, he said, my cell phone randomly died while I was in a critical conversation with my girlfriend. When I finally got to a charger, I saw the text message from her, I am now single. <laughs> random moment can change everything. One lady who worked in HR in, as a recruiter for her company wrote this. She said, I had an interview with a promising candidate for an open position at my company. The interview was going quite well until the candidate randomly interrupted me halfway through to take a selfie to show his parents that he might just get this job. He's still searching. You see, random moments have the potential of changing everything. In the events leading up to the crucifixion, there are several seemingly random moments. For instance, John in his gospel relates the fact that a cohort of soldiers, that would be 600 Roman soldiers, had come to the garden to arrest Jesus. Jesus steps forward and asks the question, who is it that you want? They respond, Jesus of Nazareth, to which Jesus replied, I am he. When Jesus responded that way, they drew back and fell to the ground. What an odd, random response from battle-hardened Roman soldiers, as well as the elite of the Jewish leadership. Luke records that moments later, Peter cut off the right ear of the high priest's servant, which was the only bloodshed in a short-lived battle that was stopped by Jesus himself. That's a random moment in the action. Mark records that as Jesus was being led away from the Garden of Gethsemane, a young man who had been following Jesus was wearing nothing but an outer coat, a linen outer coat. And the soldiers tried to seize him and arrest him as well. He wriggled out of the coat and ran into the darkness naked. Such an odd, random story that's a part of this story leading up to the crucifixion. So why are such random moments recorded? I mean, if they are indeed random, what's the point? It's not like the gospel writers needed filler for the story. There's a lot of good stuff in the story. The story stands on its own merit. And there are plenty of other stories in the Bible where I wish we had a lot more detail, but we don't because it didn't seem important. So why were these things included? Maybe, maybe they aren't so random after all. Let me revisit those three for just a moment and show you that sometimes things that appear random really aren't. Um, the Roman soldiers, most powerful army in the world at the time, falling down at the words of Jesus. Now, is there an explanation for that? Oh, there really is. And it wasn't fear. You got 600 Roman soldiers, you have one Jesus and 11 intimidated disciples. One has already gone to the other side, Judas Iscariot. So it wasn't fear. They, they certainly outnumbered the disciples. What we miss in the moment is what Jesus really said. Now I get in our English translations that we have to make it grammatically correct. And so the Bible says, I am he. That's grammatically correct. But that's not really what Jesus said. It's just really one word. It's actually one name, 
if you please, when they said, we seek Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus said, I am. And it was at the power and the authority of that name that these 600 Roman soldiers dropped back and fell to the ground. Do you remember when Moses was standing before the burning bush and God is commissioning him to go back into the land of Egypt and lead the, the, the children of Israel out of the bondage of Egyptian slavery? And Moses says, okay, what's your name? Who should I say has sent me? Give me a name so I can tell the Israelites and I can tell the Egyptians. And God said, I am who I am. The shortened version of that is I am. When Jesus boldly stated, I am, it was the power and the authority of the God of the universe that drove the Roman soldiers to their knees on the ground. Maybe, maybe that's not such a random moment after all. And how about the shortest battle in history? Up to this point in time, everything is going according to plan. The declaration that Jesus had just made had its intended impact on his listeners. But, but Peter wasn't clued in. And he had a different plan. Drawing his sword, Peter goes after the servant of the high priest. Now you've heard of the 30 years war? This is the 32nd war. One swing, one ear, and it's all over. And it was stopped by Jesus himself. And then Jesus does the unthinkable. He reaches out and heals the enemy's ear. The last of his earthly healing miracles, lavished on an enemy. Do you see the lesson here? Jesus really meant it when he said, love your enemies. Jesus really intended for us to do good to those who persecute us. And he demonstrated it right there in the garden. Now, Luke, the doctor, is the only gospel writer to include the healing. But John, John, who writes many years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke write their gospels, toward the end of the first century, includes the name of the servant. He lists his name as Malchus. Now, that would have been an uncommon thing to do. You just didn't list the name of servants. They weren't important. Unless something significant had happened. Or unless this person was well known to the recipient and the audience of the letter. You see, I'm speculating here, but John may have mentioned his name because the early church would have by that time known Malchus as a faithful convert or maybe even a leader in the early church. Once touched by the grace and the kindness of Jesus, how could he not have become a follower? Here I'm leading for his arrest, a disciple cuts off my ear, and, and the Savior heals me? How could you not be moved by such a moment? Here, here's one more thought. The name Malchus means king. There in the darkness of an olive grove, two kings met. One was a servant who acted like an arrogant king, and one was the humble king of kings who acted like a servant. Maybe, maybe it's not so random after all. And how about the guy who runs off naked under the cover of darkness? What about him? Well, in the upper room, Jesus quotes from the prophecy of Zechariah in chapter 13, verse 7, that says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Now, when Jesus was arrested, they all scattered. But, but who's this guy? Is he one of the 12? No, I don't think so. Many scholars suppose that it was John Mark, the writer of the gospel of Mark. Now, the, the coat that he was wearing, the Bible says, was a linen coat. This would have been an expensive material. It would have been a coat 
uh, worn by somebody with means or with at least some wealth behind them. It is also supposed that when Jesus met with his disciples in the upper room to celebrate the Passover and for the Lord's Supper for the first time, that they probably met in the home of John Mark's family. It would have had a large upper room that would have accommodated all of them. Now, now think about this. It, it makes sense. John Mark and his family are hosting this event. Remember, Judas left the meal before the meal was done. He left to go get the Roman soldiers. He left to go get the Jewish leaders. He was going to bring them back to find Jesus and arrest him. So as far as Judas knows, Jesus is still in the upper room. John Mark is fast asleep. So Judas comes here in the middle of the night. He is awakened out of his sleep looking for Jesus and doesn't find him. And he heads off into the garden. John Mark knows where Jesus is praying so quickly. He slips on just a coat and takes off toward the Garden of Gethsemane to warn Jesus and the disciples. And so when the Roman soldiers try to capture him, he slips out of this linen coat and runs off in the darkness without his clothes. And you say, yeah, but what does that teach us? Oh, that teaches us a lot. It tells us that when somebody wants to say, well, you know what? Really, the disciples stole the body after the crucifixion. That, that's the end of that story. No, no, no. All you have to do is turn back to this picture here and you see that all of the disciples were scattered and here was John Mark, a follower, and he leaves behind an expensive coat so as not to be captured at the time that Jesus is arrested. These men had not the character. They had not the inclination. They weren't even in the frame of mind that they could possibly have stolen the body of Christ. Maybe, maybe this isn't a random moment after all. May I suggest to you this morning that instead of viewing such moments as random, we ought to view them as compelling. The more I know about the story, the more compelled I am to want to follow Jesus Christ. And there is no more compelling and yet seemingly random event that occurs in the story leading up to the crucifixion than the story of a visitor to Jerusalem who is tasked with an unpleasant job. His name is Simon. Mark chapter 15, Mark records this. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Now, Cyrene was the capital city of ancient Cyrenaica, in, in northern Africa, really where we would recognize it more as the region of Libya today. Uh, and he may well have been a Jew coming to the city to celebrate the Passover. Uh, there was a large community of Jews that were living in Cyrene. We also know that on the day of Pentecost when the church was founded, there were people, Jews, from Cyrene in the city. We also know that there was a Cyrenian contingent that helped stone Stephen in Acts chapter 7 when he started preaching the gospel. So we can only presume, the Bible doesn't say, but I suspect he may have been a Jew in town for the Passover. Mark tells us, however, that he was simply passing by on his way in from the country and ended up in the wrong place at the wrong time. Or, or was it? It seems so random. Just entering the city, perhaps tired from the journey, trying to weave his way through the shuffling crowd on the overly packed streets during the Passover holiday. Did he reach an intersection Jesus, just as Jesus fell beneath the weight of the cross? 
Was he headed in the opposite direction when the parade of the condemned men met him on the road? Was he standing transfixed among the teeming hundreds on the roadside just watching as Jesus passed by? And out of the teeming thousands, this Roman soldier picked him to carry the cross. We don't know. Again, I'd like a little bit more detail. We don't have more detail, but we have everything we need to know. Regardless, what he was randomly chosen to do also was compelling. He was compelled to pick up the cross. He, he wasn't given an option. The Roman soldier tapped him probably with his sword and said, you pick up that cross and carry it. No choice in the matter. And it wasn't just any cross, it was the cross of Christ. Like most victims of crucifixion, Jesus was forced to carry the patabulum. That was the cross beam. Uh, the, the entire cross would have been too heavy at that time. The, the, the cross beam itself was estimated to weigh at a minimum 75 pounds. So now imagine a 75 to 100 pound beam placed upon shoulders that had been ripped apart by the scourging. When a victim had been affixed then to the cross beam, uh, he was lifted on the vertical. The vertical poles evidently were left implanted on the hill, and so they would just nail a person to the cross beam. They would take fork poles and raise the beam up until it notched into place, and they would affix it there until the person on the cross died. Then they'd take it down for the next execution. Now, given the fact that many people died from the scourging, because it tore up the back and tore out the bowels so much. Some people didn't even survive the scourging. The fact that Jesus could carry his cross at least part of the way to Calvary is nothing short of amazing. If you see pictures that depict Jesus as sort of a weak man, don't, don't, don't hang on to that image. Jesus was a man's man. He was strong. And this, this part of the story makes it real that he carried his cross at least part of the way to to the uh, uh, skull, uh, the, the uh, hill of Golgotha. Now, the Bible, again, doesn't say he fell. We, we conjecture that because why else would this man be called upon to carry the cross? And so it seems that something dramatic happened at that moment. It's hard to escape the image of Genesis chapter 22. You go all the way back to the book of Genesis. Abraham is asked to take his son Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice on a mountaintop. And so here they are walking up the mountaintop. And do you know what Isaac was carrying? He was carrying on his shoulders the wood of his sacrifice. Now the story, you get to the top of the hill. And of course, God provides the ram in the bushes. There is no death of Isaac but suddenly you're transported to this moment in time where Jesus is rising to the crest of the hill of Golgotha, carrying on his shoulders his own instrument of death. The picture is astounding. When Simon happened upon this grisly scene, he would have first noticed the centurion in charge of the execution marching ahead of the victim. And next to him would be a soldier carrying on a placard the stated crimes of the victim. The sign that Simon would have read was this. This is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. No charges, no crimes, just a statement of fact, king of the Jews. And it must have startled him. Here he'd come in for this marvelous holiday, and here he is confronted with a crucifixion. Now, what was this random but compelling moment like for Simon? If you stop to think, what, what, would have, what would it have been like for this guy? He would have been compelled to pick up the cross, which was equal to a death sentence. The only people that ever carried crosses were the people who were condemned to die on the crosses. 
So when Simon was asked to pick up the cross, that must have sent a shiver down his spine. It'd be like us going to visit someone in prison today and say, hey, while I'm here, can I sit in the electric chair for a few moments? Now, who'd, who'd want to do that? I mean, what a, what a grisly thing to do, but that's what's happening here. He's carrying somebody's instrument of death. I suspect he was a strong man, probably why the centurion tagged him for the job. And whatever festive clothes he was wearing for the occasion were suddenly stained and smeared with the blood of Jesus. What, what was it like to feel the warm blood of Jesus on your neck and cheek as you bent to pick up that, boat, that beam that had been covered with the blood of this broken, torn, wounded Savior? We talk about our sins being covered with the blood of the Savior. Simon was literally covered with the blood of the Savior. Did Jesus wince as Simon picked the beam from his shoulders? Did Jesus whisper, thanks? Did he bless Simon for what he was about to do? What did Simon see when he looked into the eyes of the God of the universe who was about to be crucified for his sins? And when they finally reached the summit, did he drop the beam and run as fast as he could? Or did he stay to find out more about this man who, to whom he had become a partner in execution? Well, I can only conjecture. Again, the Bible doesn't say, but I think he stayed. He was, first of all, compelled to carry the cross by the Romans, but he was compelled to stay at the cross, I believe, by his own conviction. And you say, well, I think that's too much of a stretch. I don't. And here's why. You see, Mark identified Simon as the father of Rufus and Alexander. Remember reading that? Now, there would be no reason to do that unless, unless Rufus and Alexander were well known to Mark's audience. And if that's the case, it is likely that they had become Christians, perhaps under the influence of their father who had met Jesus on the first of the three most important days of all of history. Now, Rufus was a common name in that day and time, but Paul's letter to Romans may, may refer to this son of Simon. Romans 6.13 says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother who has been a mother to me too. Might, might be the same Rufus. And in 1941, an excavation uncovered a burial cave in the southwest slope of Kidron, which belonged to a Jew from Cyrene. And the ossuary, or the bone box that was inside the tomb, was, was dated pre-70 AD, and it was inscribed twice with the title, Alexander, son of Simon. Is it the same Alexander of this Cyrenian Jew? Maybe. It's intriguing to think about, and why shouldn't it be? Once you've come in contact with Jesus, once you've felt the blood of his sacrifice on your neck and on your clothes, once you've peered into the eyes of the God of the universe who's sa saving your life by his death, how could you turn away and not be changed? You see, I don't think that day in Jerusalem was a random moment at all. I think God was at work in the life of Simon and for his children and for his grandkids and all generations to follow. Changed the trajectory of their lives. Now, let me just quickly give you a couple things I want you to take home with you as a result of, of all this that we've looked at. And the first, first point is simply this. Life isn't random. 
I would suggest to you this morning that few things in your life are truly random. It may feel they are, but I really don't think they are. Certainly, God is not responsible for everything that happens in your life. He's not to blame for our sinful choices or for the tragedies that happen as the result of living in a world where, co- where evil coexists with good. But God can take even the most random moments and pull them together to help life make sense. But, but, but please know this. Your random moments are not going to be like my random moments because God doesn't treat us all the same. No parent treats their children the same. We try to treat them fairly. We try to treat them equally to the best of our ability. But you don't treat them the same because no two children have the same personality, the same gifts, the same talents, the same needs. And so you have to tailor your actions toward that child's bent and personality and perspective. You do your best to treat them equally, but you can't treat them the same. So your random moments are not going to be mine, and mine are not going to be yours, but God knows what is best for us and what will give us purpose now, and better yet, what will give us a future worth living for down the road. Now, that future may not always be clear in the moment. Do you think it was clear for Simon? When the Roman soldiers say, hey, you there, pick up that cross. In Simon's mind, it was the worst possible outcome of a holiday. But in, re- in retrospect, it was the best thing that could have happened to the man if he became a follower of Jesus Christ. And if you think you can manipulate God for your interest, if you think you can twist God around so he'll do things your way, I, you think again. God cannot be coerced. John Piper wrote, God is not constrained by any inner deficiency or unhappiness to do anything he does not want to do. You cannot trick him. Strong-arm him, intimidate him, threaten him, or pressure him into anything that God doesn't want to do. And that should make you glad. Makes me glad. Because I know if I could, I'd manipulate him for the wrong reason. But in the random moments of my life, I want to know that somebody is standing behind me who is unchangeable, stable, incontrovertible, that keeps me on a solid foundation when everything else around me is crumbling. You see, it's a good thing that we cannot manipulate God. And it's a great thing that God can manipulate the random moments of our life to bring us into a beautiful, compelling picture. Tom Brokaw, in The Greatest Generation, speaks of the, uh, tells the story of Veronica Hulick's service during World War II. Uh, she was a Navy wave, and along with 1,500 other women, was tasked with long hours at work in a monotonous job of wiring red, yellow, green, and blue wires into small wheels. Now, it seemed like the most random task possible, and they had no idea what they were doing. They were later transferred to Washington, D.C., where they were sworn to secrecy with the consequences of being shot if they told anybody what they were up to. They had helped build the forerunner of today's computers, but they didn't understand that. They didn't know anything about that. Uh, but they were split up into groups of 500, and, and they worked in, in a, a, a series around the clock, 500 women, to run 120 computer-like machines that they had built with all this wiring they did. When, when the war was over, each one of them was brought into an office, and they were required to take an oath, had to swear on a Bible that they would never, ever talk about the work they had done. They were even given a letter to use to their potential future employers, don't ask about their service in the Navy, they can't tell you. 
1994, 80 of those 1,500 women met in Dayton, Ohio for a reunion 50 years after the fact. It was then, for the first time, that a Navy historian told them about the fruit of their labor. They had been responsible for the sinking of between 750 and 800 enemy submarines. They had helped shorten the war by one, maybe even two years, and had saved countless hundreds and thousands of lives. What had seemed so random at the time had an enormous impact upon humanity. And here's the sad thing. Most of the women who had worked at that random job didn't live long enough to learn what they had accomplished. You may not know how life's puzzle pieces fit together. You may not live long enough to see here a completed picture. But God knows. Trust him to paint a perfect picture of the random moments in your life because they aren't random. And here's the last thing. Following Jesus is compelling. A preacher trying to make a compelling case for people following Jesus Christ came to the pinnacle of his sermon and in a dramatic way he said, every single member of this congregation is going to die. And he paused for dramatic effect and when he did he heard a guy on the front row giggling. Just threw him way off his game. He looked at the guy and said, what is the matter with you? And the guy says, I'm visiting today. I'm not a member of this congregation. <laughs> Just because you're not a member doesn't mean you're going to escape what everybody's going to face. It's compelling to think that all of us will die someday. Simon carried the cross for Christ that Jesus died on. But the day came when Simon too died. And so did Alexander and Rufus. And so will you. And so will I. And what will you do now to make your time left count most effectively? What is it? Who is it that compels you to live your life to the fullest? Kyler Lee is an actor who is currently starring in the TV series Supergirl. During her early acting career, she suffered with severe drug addiction and her health broke. Then one day, she and her husband accepted what appeared to be a random invitation from a friend to go to church on Sunday. They didn't go to church. They thought they would do it because at that point in their lives, everything was broken anyway, and it changed everything. Kyler Lee is a strong Christian. She is very actively involved in her church, and she told a reporter this. We went through about two years of complete obliteration, and it came down to this. Do you want to choose to live, or do you want to choose to die. We chose life. You see, that, that's what I think it, it is like to follow Jesus. When you choose him, it is choosing to live, to live life to the fullest, to be compelled to make the most of your life because he and only he can take all the pieces of the puzzle and put them together, the random pieces, and they will make sense. Maybe not here, but someday. Every day we make choices that may at the moment seem random. But over time, those choices shape who we are. You see, I don't think anybody ever sets out to be an addict or an unfaithful spouse or a delinquent parent or a teenager who withdraws from everything and everyone who can help them. We really want to succeed. Most of us want our lives to go well. We all want that happily ever after kind of ending, but the choices that we make don't always get us where we want to be. 
But the most compelling choice that we can make is to follow Jesus because he's the only one. He's the only one who can take all of these pieces that make no sense in our mind and bring them together to create a beautiful picture out of our lives. And you say, ah, really? Yeah, really. You want to know why I believe that? Let me tell you why I believe it. It's because of the last thing that Jesus said on the cross. Some people say it was the most random thing he said on the cross. John records it like this in chapter 19, verse 30. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. In the Greek, again, in the English, it's, it's three words. But in the Greek, it's only one word. It was one last word, tetelestai. And it came as a shout. Matthew, Mark, Luke all record that Jesus shouted at the end. Some people see it as a cry of defeat. It wasn't a cry of defeat. This is not a sad word. It was the shout of victory. The word tetelestai means completed. It was the cry of the artist with the last brushstroke to create a masterpiece. It's complete. Tetelestai. It was the cry of the commanding officer at the conclusion of a victorious great battle. It's over. It's completed. We've won to Telestai. It was the word that was stamped across the bottom of a bill of sale indicating paid in full to Telestai. And when Jesus died, he shouted that last word of victory because that word means everything that can be done to save humanity has been done. My task is complete. The victory has been won. Salvation has come. And that one word compels me to follow Jesus Christ more than anyone else because only he can take the randomness of my life and give it compelling meaning.